Okay, Parshas Chukas. The topic tonight is going to be a very interesting topic, and that is the utilization of scientific data obtained through immoral means. So we have a little bit of a, a different type of topic this evening. Um, much attention has been focused on scientific data that was compiled by German scientists during the Holocaust. Information that was obtained as a result of cruel and inhumane experiments, not to speak of uh, inhuman and immoral experiments, <clears throat> that were conducted upon inmates and prisoners of the concentration camps. Um, some time ago, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, they were attempting to perfect an antidote to the phosgene poison gas. Okay. They're trying to create an antidote to this poison gas, and they realized that actually the best source for an antidote to this gas was uh, information gleaned by the Germans as a result of experiments that uh, the Germans tried to use on their uh, inmates. And there was a big uproar whether they would be allowed to take this information that the Nazis had gleaned from their experiments and publish it and accept it as scientific fact and try to actually... Uh, take advantage of it. Even more significantly, in the Hypothermia Research Laboratory of the University of Minnesota, they investigated procedures utilized in the rescue of persons accidentally swept into icy water. Now we know that among the most brutal of the Nazi crimes were experiments involving hypothermia performed at the Dachau concentration camps. These studies were designed to establish the most effective treatment for victims of immersion hypothermia, particularly German airmen that were shot down over the icy North Sea. So what they did was they took 300 uh, Jewish inmates and they were placed in near freezing water for various periods of time. And the Nazis tried various experiments of different ways to warm up these, these poor Yidden, Nebuch. The results of the experiment were 80 to 90 Jews died on the, uh, during these experiments. And the question now is, are we allowed to use the information the Nazis have gleaned through this cruel, inhuman torture to try to save the lives or benefit the lives of people who are suffering hypothermia? Now, very interesting that the German experiments were not the only experiments that are known to be inhuman and cruel. First of all, people who know, in Tuskegee, Alabama, there was a study involving 412 black sharecroppers who were suffering from syphilis. It's probably the best known, most notorious case. The physicians observed the ravages of the disease, including blindness, paralysis, dementia, and early death without disclosing to the patients their diagnosis. Other examples include the Willowbrook hepatitis study where retarded children were deliberately given the hepatitis uh, virus. Okay, so this is a uh, episode, this is a situation which is not specific, which is not unique to uh, the Nazi war crimes, but nevertheless this is something that comes up very often, and it's been said that most medical knowledge that we have today, we don't know exactly what percent, but most medical knowledge that we have today is based on cruel and inhuman experimentation. And the question is, halachically, are we allowed to use this information? Or do we say that since it was obtained through um, halachically prohibited means and ways, do we say, you know, it's like a mitzvah babavero. We're not allowed to recognize, we're not allowed to use this information. So, very interesting. Dr. Henry Beecher published in June 16, 1966 in the New England Journal of Medicine. He formulates what he considers that illicitly obtained information cannot be recognized and admitted as evidence in scientific investigations. His principle is that any information that is obtained immorally is inherently immoral. That was the principle of Dr. Beachman. And this principle was supported by Daniel Callahan and by Abraham Foxman, the national director of the Anti-Defamation League. Okay, so now our question is, what does the halacha say about this? You know, at first glance you hear, the Nazis gleaned information by torturing Jews, so we're naturally uh, horrified to even consider 
taking advantage of this information. You're going to use information that Nazis used at our own brother and sister's uh, expense? I mean, how could, we, uh, how could we allow this information to be used? So the first thing we have to understand is that in the realm of halacha, our natural inclinations play absolutely zero role in deciding what the halacha is. Very often, there are various situations in uh, historical situations, situations of hashkafa, we want to know what to do. So you hear people say, well my opinion is, or my natural reaction is, that's very nice, you're entitled to your opinion, you're entitled to a natural reaction, but nevertheless, ultimately, the halacha does not recognize the natural inclination or the personal opinion of a layman, unless you're able to, to quote chapter and verse. The Ramam says, the Gemara says this, and Shasta says like this, you're entitled to your opinion, but nevertheless one has to abdicate their opinion in the face of Hacha. And this is the important lesson for Parashat Lukas. We have the Paraduma. The main lesson of the Paraduma is that we have no understanding of it, and we accept it, because Ma'ezev Gozer Alai. You know, if you want to know, should I go to the parade, should I not go to the parade? Should people go to the army, not go to the army? And I feel, I think, it's wonderful, you feel, you think. If you're able to quote chapter and verse, this is what the Gemara says, this is what the Shulchan Aruch says, so then your opinion is supported by the halacha. Otherwise, it's just, it has no halachic significance. Okay, so let's begin uh, by analyzing this topic uh, halachically, and we start with the Gemara Psachim. The Gemara Psachim says like this, and this is one of the main arguments that is marshaled to uh, try to explain why maybe it's perhaps not appropriate to use this information in helping people. And that is, the Gemara says like this, Ki Yasa Ravin, Amar Rabbi Yochanan, Ba'chol Misrapin Chutz Me'avoyde Zara, V'gilei Arayos Ushvichasdam. One is allowed to cure yourself with anything. You need to cure yourself. You want to take vitamins that don't work. You want to take, you know, various fish oils that who knows if they do anything. No problem. You could do whatever you want. You could take any pills. You think it costs more money. It works better. Yeah, you, whatever. Whatever you need to do to cure yourself, you're allowed to do. However, there are three things you're allowed to use to cure yourself. Avoidazara, idolatry. In other words, if the only way to cure yourself is to... You know, you have an image of the Buddha and you need to bow down to the Buddha in order to get cured. You cannot do that to cure yourself. Gili Arayo, someone claims that the only way they're going to be cured is if they gaze at an immodestly clad woman. So you say, well, uh, it's only a lav in the Torah to gaze at an immodestly, immodestly clad woman. So I don't have to give up my life and that's the only way I'm going to live. No, it's called Abizrai the Arayas. It's actually considered the dust of Gili Arayos, and one would have to give up their life, even if that's the only way to save yourself. Or Shvichas Domen. If somebody would have to kill someone else to cure themselves, let's say they had some kind of uncontrollable desire to kill, and that would be the only way to save their own life, they would not be allowed to do so. Okay, so if that's the case, perhaps we could claim, perhaps we could make the case, that to, to get information, to use information, that the Nazis gleaned through bloodshed and through murder, that is considered a violation of the Gemara that says that we're not allowed to cure yourself through bloodshed, right? If the Nazis figured out how to cure someone, uh, how to help someone in, uh, th through hypothermia by killing Jews, so the Gemara says you're not allowed to cure yourself through shvichos damim, through bloodshed. And in fact, this would explain the Gemara in Pesachim, the Gemara tells us about a king by the name of Chizkiyo HaMelech, in his career, he did six major things. Three of the things the Chachamim gave him a haskama on, they gave him an endorsement. Three of the things he did, the Chachamim did not give him an endorsement. What are the things that he did, says the Gemara, the Gemara says that he, his father was a Russia. His father, Achaz, was a Russia. Chizkiyot took the bones of his father, Achaz, dragged them through the street. The Chachamim said, Good job. Kudos to you, you know, two thumbs up. The Chachamim gave him a haskam on it. And then we read in this week's parasha how the Jews were bitten by the snakes, right? They were bitten by the snakes until Moshe Rabbeinu constructs Nechash HaNechoshes, the copper snake. And ultimately, Chizkiyot HaMelech took the snake of Moshe Rabbeinu and he destroyed it, he crushed it, and the Chachamim said, good going. And finally, Chizkiyot HaMelech hid what we call Sefer Refuais, the book of healing. There was a book. We don't know exactly who wrote it, the Ramam says. 
and you open up the book, it says if you have a headache, you know, eat this piece of grass. You have an ingrown toenail, do this and this and this. You have the flu, do that. And in this book, you can look up any disease, any illness, any sickness. It tells you exactly what to do. And Chizkiyahu HaMelech took this book and he hid the book. Asked the Rambam, what in the world is he doing? Why would he hide the book of Rufuos? Here, you, their Jews are sick. They have headaches. They have, they have colds. They have ingrown toenails. And if only they could open up the book, the Sefer Rufuos, and cure themselves, why would Chizkiyahu HaMelech hide the book? This is a very important work. This is a very important piece of literature. And the Ramam is forced to say something which many Achroinim struggle to understand. And that is, Chizkiyot HaMelech hid the book because many of the practices in the book involved forbidden practices. It would say to draw a certain image and to focus on the image and to acknowledge that the image has certain powers. And therefore, the Ramam says, since this was a forbidden form of activity, Chizkiyot HaMelech took the book and he hid the book. So the Rambam asks, so why did they, whoever wrote it, why did he write it in the first place? So the Rambam says, there are many things you're allowed to learn about, but you're not allowed to perform. For instance, the Sanhedrin had to know sorcery. Right? Otherwise, how would they put a sorcerer to death? So the Sanhedrin had to know all the intricate nuances of how to perform sorcery. But of course, the Sanhedrin never actually performed sorcery because there are many things you're allowed to know about and learn about, but you're not allowed to perform. So whoever authored the work Sefer HaRafuais, by the way, if you want to know who wrote it, the Tashbeitz writes that when the sons of Noach were on the Teva and they're crowded together with all the wild animals and the garbage is building up and all the animals, you know, the fleas and all the... Uh, the, hy- the hygienic conditions were very poor and disease was rampant. So two malachim came down from Shamayim and they taught Noyach's sons the Sefer Harafuais. Okay, the Rambam doesn't write about that. That's what the Tashbeitz write, writes that he heard from his Rebbe, the Maharami Rotenberg, when he was in jail. But in any event, Chizkiyot HaMelech saw that people, instead of just learning about these Rafuais, actually were performing the Rafuais and therefore Chizkiyot HaMelech hit it. But the question is, but human life reigns supreme. So what if these activities are forbidden? But it would save lives. Says the Rambam, the answer is, you can't cure yourself with anything. You can't cure yourself with Avodah with Gili Arayos, with Shrikas So even if it's going to mean loss of life, it doesn't mean you could use that remedy, you could use that cure. So perhaps then we can make the case that whatever information the Nazis gleaned or the United States gleaned by torturing these, uh, these uh, African-Americans by, uh, through the syphilis virus, we're not allowed halachically to use that information because this is a violation of bakal misrapin chutz mishvichas damim. If this information came at the expense of bloodshed, you're not allowed to use it. You can't cure people with it. That's what the Gemara says. But what we're going to do now is we're going to draw a very important distinction that the entire shear rests upon. Okay? You get this distinction, you get the shear. And that is the Gemara that says you're not a cure person, you're not a cure at the expense of bloodshed. That means you're not allowed to kill someone in order to heal, to heal yourself or to heal someone else. That means like this, if the, if the medicine that you're using, if the remedy that you're using means you're going to be killing somebody, you can't use that medicine, you can't use that remedy. Like organ transplantation. What about the mice, the white mice uh, in the laboratory? White mice are not people. God gave animals for our use. If the animal is not being used for us, it's, it's suffering. An animal that's sitting there in its cage, and a human being could use it, and the, the uh, liberals would like to say, no, don't take the animal, you're going to hurt the animal. The animal is suffering in its cage. It has the greatest pleasure you could give an animal is to use it for the purpose of mankind. That's why God created it. But we're not talking about animals here. We're talking about human beings. If saving someone's life means killing somebody else, you're not allowed to do it. But in the situation that we're dealing with, where the Nazis gleaned information unethically, or the Americans gleaned information unethically. They did what they did. It's ipso facto. It's finished. The information has already been gleaned. Now what? You're going to ignore it? 
You're not killing anybody by ignoring that information. You're not killing anybody by using that information. The information is sitting there on a piece of paper. So what are you going to do? You're going to be an ostrich? You're going to stick your head in the sand and you say, no, I'm not using it because it came at the expense of human life? That already happened in the past. If using a medicinal element, a remedy, means killing someone, so you can kill someone to cure yourself. But using this information is not killing anyone. Someone has already been killed in the past, unfortunately. Now you want to know, is this information permitted? So what the Rambam tells us that Chizkiyot hid, the Sefer HaRafuos, has no bearing whatsoever on this issue. The Sefer HaRafuos you're now to use because using those Rafuos means violating Avodah Zarah. But using this information gleaned by the Nazis doesn't mean killing anyone. The Nazis did what they did Nebuch, 50, 60 years ago. Now the information is sitting here. So what the Rambam says has really no bearing on this issue. Okay. Perhaps we could extrapolate from another case. And that is, someone once came to Rav Yaakov Emden, and he asked Rav Yaakov Emden the following question. This is brought in the Sheila Siyavitz, Chelek Bez, Simen Kuf Nanchas. There was a court. It was a non-Jewish court. And the court used to carry out capital punishment, and they used to use a very big sword. A big sword. And this guy, right, he wanted to buy this sword, right? Jews like to buy swords. And he took, he went over to the uh, court, he said, I'll buy the sword off you for a million dollars. They said, fine. He takes the sword, and he goes to Main Street. And he sees on Main Street that the guy who checks for shotness, he also sharpens knives. Why? I have no idea. <laughs> so he goes to Main Street and he says, you know, you mind sharpening this knife? I need it to shecht behemoths. <coughs> so now the question is, is this guy allowed to take the knife that the executioner used to kill untold amounts of people, even Jews, and use it to shecht the animals? So the person came to Rav Yaakov Emden, and like most people ask a rabbi a question, Rabbi, I have a question, and I would like to answer, right? So the man offered the following answer to Rav Yaakov Emden. That no, you can use this, I can use this sword. Why? Because there's a, a rule that we learned from this week's parasha. And that is, it says, look at number 8. It says, V'choyel asher yiga al pnei asada b'chal el Anything that touches the face of the field, where there is someone slain by the sword. So the Gemara Masech the Shabbos picks up on this Lashon, Chalal Cherev. Slain by the sword, the Gemara Darshans, A sword has a status of the dead body itself, which means like this. We know the highest level of Tumah is a dead body. A dead body is Aviyavoysa Something that touches a dead body is an Avatama. If a person touches a dead body, he becomes the next level Avatama. But if somebody takes a sword and kills somebody, the dead body is avi'avoysatoma. You would think the sword would now be one degree below an avatoma. Says the Gemara, cherav harehu kechalal. The sword attains the status of avi'avoysatoma. Okay, it's an important rule that a metal object that comes into contact with a with toma attains the status of that toma. So therefore, this person says to Rav Yaakov Emden, if the sword which killed someone is mamish avi'avoysatoma, how could you use avi'avoysatoma? to shecht a behemoth. Says of Yaakov Emden, the question is empty, and the answer is absolute stupidity. What are you talking about? What does Tumah have to do with food? Who in the world is careful not to eat Tumah food anymore? Did you ever hear of a Kohen? Oh, I'm not going to eat that steak, because uh, it touched a dead body? There's no such halacha. There's no Kohanim who are careful not to eat meat that came in contact with Tumah. So what are you talking about that the sword, because it's Tameh, can't be used to shecht meat? But Rabbi Yaakov Emden says, I would say that the sword cannot be used to shecht for a different reason. What's the reason? The Gemara says in Sanhedrin that the stone, look at number 5, the Gemara in Sanhedrin, a stone used to stone someone. In Bezin, right? We know Bezin carried out four types of death. Death penalties, right? So if they told the guy, you know, don't drive your car on Shabbos, don't write a word on Shabbos with your pencil, and the guy says, Afal Pekin, I'm going to do it. So he was warned. Bezin would take him out to the court, and they would throw him off a roof, and then they would stone him to death. So the stones used, let's say, to execute someone who desecrated Shabbos, 
You're not, oh, what do you do with the stone? What do you do with the stone? Do you put it in the, uh, in the, uh, the Jewish museum? I mean, what do you do with these stones? Right? The achas eats, right? Imagine you went to the Jewish museum. Halavai, there should be something in there that said, this is a stone that used to be used to execute people who desecrated Shabbos. Right? That's what they should be in the museum. But are you allowed to do that? Biachas eight shenisla alav, or a tree that Bezdin hung someone on. Biachad saif shenaragbai, or a sword that Bezdin used to kill someone. Biachad suda shenechnakbai, or the handkerchief that they used to choke someone. What do you do with it? eBay, what do you do with this item? Kulan nikbarin ima, you have to bury it with the mace. Now the question is why? Why would you have to bury the item used to execute someone? By the way, the Sefer Hasidim writes the exact same thing. That one, one time somebody found Jews who were killed al-Kiddush Hashem and they unearthed the graves and they find next to these Jews were the knives used to kill the Jews. And the Sefer Hasidim writes, don't use that knife, keep it buried under the ground. If you know it's good for you, don't get any hana from this knife that was used to kill Jews. Says of Yaakov Emden, why do you have to bury the item that Bezdin used to execute someone? Says of Yaakov Emden, it must be the same way you have to bury a mace and you're now to get hana from a mace. This is important halacha. Right? If you ever, you know, it used to be in the olden days you had grave diggers. Yeah, they would, they would dig up the grave after the person was buried. So what would they do? They would sell the bodies, they would take out, you know, the cab, the fillings, right? They would take out the golden fillings and they would sell it, all right? There is a Isser Da'iraisa to derive any benefit from a dead body. We'll see, is it only a Jewish body or even a, a Gentile body? But a Jewish body, there is an Isser Da'iraisa to derive any benefit from a Jewish body. Once a person passes away, oh, he's Asr Bahana. She's Asr Bahana. Says uh, Yaivit, says Rabbi Yaakov Emden, not only is the dead body Yasser Bahana, the item that Bezdin used to execute someone in the Jewish court is also Yasser Bahana and has to be buried. Says Rabbi Yaakov Emden further, what if the person who killed this Jew wasn't a Bezdin? What if somebody murdered a Jew? Someone took a knife, he committed murder with a knife. Not only do you have to bury the dead person, you have to bury the knife, even though the item used was not Bezdin's item. In other words, Rav Yaakov Emden understands that any item whatsoever that was used to kill someone is Asr Bahana. You're not allowed to derive benefit from. In fact, I'll tell you an amazing question that came up. In the Shah Tshuva's Kol Mavaser from Rav Mishulam Rata, Chelek Aleph Simenun Ches. The administration of the museum on Harzion decided that every year on the 10th day of Teves, during their Holocaust memorial service, so they're going to get a chazan to sing Kael Malay, to sing uh, some Yizkar ceremony. And this guy, this chazan, you know, you can't be a good chazan unless you have a good gartel. So they were going to take out of their museum some artifacts, some Holocaust artifacts, for example, the noose that they found that the Nazis used to hang hundreds of Jews. So they're going to take the noose and wrap it around the belly of the chazan so that the chazan could wear this noose as a gartel when he says the kelmoe on Yud Teves on Hartzion for the Holocaust memorial service. And when Mishulam Rata was asked, is this permitted? So he says, of course it's not permitted. It's an Isser Dairaisa. Aside from the fact that it's, it, you know, it, 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 it is abhorrent to think about somebody wearing a noose around their stomach as they're singing, singing a Kelmole in memory of the Kedoshim, and despite the fact that it's probably, you cannot come up with a more pathetic way to memorialize the Kedoshim, says Rav Rata, beyond that, it's actually an Isser Dairaisa. Why? Because Rav Yaakov Emden tells us based on the Gemara and Sanhedrin, that not only is a dead body, Yasser Bahana, but an item that was used not only by Bezdin to kill someone, but by any person who uses an item to kill a Jew, that item becomes Yasser Bahana. So this guy, he's wearing this gartel and he thinks he's doing a big mitzvah memorializing the Kedoshim. Meanwhile, he becomes a Cheftza Shalavira. He is get, deriving benefit, he's getting Hana from... This noose. What should this noose, what should you do with the noose? 
should take the noose and you should fulfill the mitzvah of burying the noose. You know, you go to Yad Vashem and you see various tools that Nazis use to kill Yidin, you should know that displaying these tools is an Isra Dairaisa because they're making money, they're getting a certain benefit by displaying them. You're not allowed to display them. You know what you have to do? Would, would anybody uh, go into a museum and sit by idly if they displayed dead bodies in a, behind glass? Of course not. Right? People, there would be terrible outcry. There would be hafganot, right? There would be protests. You think the protests in Israel now? You mad, just imagine if there would be dead bodies behind glass cases. Says Ramashom Roth, it's the same thing to display a noose or any item the Nazis used to kill Jews. It comes from the same pasuk in the Chumash. Cover tikperenu. You got to bury the dead body. You have to bury, according to Rabbi Yaakov Emden, whatever tool was used to, to kill someone. Now let's just realize that Rabbi Yaakov Emden's chiddush is a very big chiddush. Because all the Gemara says is anything that Bezdin used to to deliver, to administer capital punishment has to be buried. The Gemara doesn't say that if a guy killed a Jew with an item, you have to bury that item. So you say, what's the distinction? There's a very big distinction. Because if you look in the Rambam, when the Rambam codifies this halacha number 12 in Hilchel Sanhedrin, Karak Tezvav Halacha Tes, the Rambam says, you know why a tree that was used to hang someone? You know why a noose that was used to hang someone? You know why you have to bury it? Says the Rambam, very interesting. Not because it's Asr Bahana. Says the Rambam, if uh, a person had relations with an animal, so, uh, so according to the halacha, the person is liable to the death penalty. What do you do with the animal? Now the animal says, you know, moo, right? I don't have to keep the Tyra. So we say, you're right. But if you're going to be parading down the street, you know, people are going to say, you see that cow? You know what Yankel did with that cow? Yankel's going to be very embarrassed. So it's bad enough we have to kill Yanko, but we have to embarrass him also, so we kill the cow. We kill the cow. So the Rambam says the same way we kill the cow, we have to bury the noose. Because people are going to say, you see this noose that we hung this Jew because he did an Avera? If that's the case, if the Rambam is saying the reason why you have to bury the item that Bezdin used to hang someone, that would only apply then if Bezdin killed someone because of an Avera that they did, because it's shameful to the person if people are going to remember the Avera they did. But if somebody, Chas Hashem, was murdered by a Gentile, then the item the Gentile used is not a source of embarrassment to the Nifter, to the Mace. But what are people going to say? The Jew didn't do anything wrong, just the opposite. He died out Kiddush Hashem. So you can make the case that what Rav Yaakov Emden is saying is really not that simple. Because the simple... Meaning of the Gemara is specific to when Bezdin administers capital punishment, like you see in the Rambam. But nevertheless, Rav Yaakov Emden understands that the halacha is, it's a universal halacha. Any item used to kill someone, to kill a Jew, not only do you have to bury a Yid, you have to bury whatever item was used to uh, kill a Jew. And in fact, I'll tell you one more uh, shaila, a horrifying shaila. You have uh, brought down over here in number 16 from uh, Contemporary Halachic Problems in the fourth volume. He brings down a footnote from the Chuvas Vayan Avram, who has asked the following Shaila. They found the pipes that were used in the gas chambers with which gas was channeled into the gas chambers. They found these pipes. Are you allowed to melt the pipes? and fashion them into a mezuzah cover. Why someone would want to do that? But that's the question. And the answer he gave is, based on Rav Yaakov Emden, that not only is a mace asurbana, but the item used to kill someone is also asurbana. So you can't use a mezuzah cover as a mezuzah case. You can't use the pipes as a mezuzah case. So Rabbi Bleich, would like to draw a distinction that actually Rabbi Yaakov Emden's uh, case has nothing to do with the Shaila at hand. Because when you have the pipes that channel the gas into the gas chambers, the pipes were not the item used to kill. The gas was used to kill. The pipes were merely the vehicle through which the gas traveled. If that's the case, 
you cannot say that the pipes were the article used to commit murder, and according to that, perhaps it would be permitted. I think that you could uh, make the argument against this logic, and that is that if gas is traveling through a pipe, and without the pipe, the gas would just diffuse into the air, and would not be an item that could kill, and the pipe is sort of directing the gas, I think you can make a very strong case that the pipe actually becomes the weapon of destruction. Nobody would say that a gun is not a weapon of destruction. Well, the gun is just the pipe with the bullet travels through. Of course not. A bullet in your hand is not going to do anything for you. What are you going to do with a bullet? You need the revolver to create the, uh, the force and the direction. Okay. This is just, you know, academic. But that's the... Uh, that is the principle of Rav Yaakov Emden. Rav Yaakov Emden's principle is that not only is a dead body usher to get Hana, you're not allowed to get Hana from an instrument that is used to kill. Rabbi Isai, where do we learn out that you're not allowed to get Hana from a dead body? Where, in the, where does it say? Show me. Where does it say in the Chumash you can't get Hana from a dead body? Where does it say if somebody is buried in the ground you can't dig him up? take his golden tooth and sell it on 47th Street. Where does it say that? This week's Parsha. We're in this week's Parsha. The Pasuk says that when Miriam passed away, look at number 15, All of the Bnei Yisrael came to Midbar Tzin, Miriam. Miriam died there. The word Sham is extra. The Gemara Navadizar Daf says it says the word Sham by Egla Arufa. It says Sham by Miriam dying. Just like you're not allowed to derive benefit from an Egla Arufa, you can't direct, um, derive benefit from a dead body. <laughs> so somebody asks you, where does it say in the Torah you're not allowed to derive benefit from a dead body? It's this week's Pasha. About Thomas, Sham, Miriam. Okay? So based on what we've just said, if you're not allowed to derive benefit from a dead body, so all of the information the Nazis gleaned from their, experiment, from their experiments and all the other scientific information that's been learned from bloodshed, you're not allowed to get Hana from a dead person. Scientific information, isn't that Hana? So if scientific information is a Hana, then perhaps you're not allowed to utilize information that has been gleaned from bloodshed. So maybe you have to take all the data and all the statistics that the Nazis have on record, take it, and throw it into the Red Sea. You're not allowed to derive benefit from a dead person. So again, it's apples and oranges. Listen to the distinction very carefully. Of course you're not allowed to derive benefit from a dead person. Of course all the experiments that the Nazis did and that they did in the... Uh, in that institution, they're all prohibited. You're not allowed to derive benefit from a dead person. Fine. But now the, the information has already been learned. The information is sitting here. You're allowed to derive benefit from the information. You can't derive the information in the first place. But once information has been derived, you could use it. I'll give you a very simple illustration. There are many things in halacha that are asr bahana. You can't get hana from clay hakerem from uh, if grapes and wheat were planted together, you can't get enough from it. You can't get enough from a sharhaniskal, an ox that has to be murdered. But what would the halacha be if you sold the clay akarim, or you sold the ox, and now you have money in your pocket? You weren't allowed to sell it. You weren't allowed to get the money. But now you have the money. Are you allowed to use the money? Of course you're allowed to use the money. You're not allowed to get enough from the item itself. Once the item is transferred to something else, you're allowed to get enough from the item it's been transferred to. That's pasha, it's obvious. Everybody knows anything which is Asr Bahana, even Avaidazara, even Isure Hana that are associated with Avaidazara. If you sold the Avaidazara, you weren't allowed to sell in the first place. But once you sold it, you could use the money. So in this case, of course, of course, the Nazis were not allowed to derive information by killing people. Of course not. No one is allowed to derive anything from a dead person. But now the information is here. You can't derive information from the mace, but you could derive inf you could use the information. So the fact that Rabbi Yaakov Emden says not to use the executioner's knife as a shechita knife, right? You can't get Hana from the knife. 
because that was an item used to kill someone. Or in the case of Mishon Rata, you can't use the noose to put around the chazan who wants to gurgle the kelmale. And maybe you can use the mezuzah case that used to be the pipelines that the gas used to travel through. But now that the information has been derived, you could use the information. Let's advance one final possible argument. And that is a medical student. Student in medical school. So how do they learn how the anatomy of uh, the human body? Cadavers. right? So they, they have a a mess, they have a cadaver on the table, they dissect the body, they learn the different body parts, they learn how to cut, that's how they learn. Is that considered getting hana from a mess? Is studying the anatomy of a dead body on the table, is that considered getting hana from a mace? No, because you didn't kill him. No, he's already dead. Says Achsam Seifer, you cannot study a cadaver. What is it? Is it an Isr Drabana? No, it's an Isr Dairaisa. It's a biblical prohibition to look at a dead body, says Achsam Seifer. If you're looking at a dead body to learn the aorta, uh, the, the chambers of the heart or the chambers of the lungs, in order for you to gain scientific information, to be able to charge people a lot of money later in life, so then that is considered Hana. Says Asam Soifer, you're not allowed to study. Forget about sell. You're not allowed to study a dead body on the table. Why? Where does it say? A Pasuk in this week's parasha. What's the Pasuk? Batamas Sham Miriam. That a dead body is also... But what do you mean? What's the Hana? The Hana is, how much money did you pay to go to medical school? You paid $50,000 a year? For what? To gain knowledge. That means knowledge is Hana. You're not allowed... So you'll ask, so how does a Jewish person go to medical school? Ah, oh, so the Chassam Seifer is bothered by this question. Chassam Seifer says that if you look in the Gemara in Bechayrois, on the Memheyom and Aleph, number 22 on the sheets, the Torah tells us about, the Gemara tells us about a story with the students of Rabbi Shmuel, who they heard about a certain prostitute that the government killed her. So they bought her body and they boiled it in a pot. Now when you boil a dead body in a pot, you may not know this, but the, uh, <laughs> the flesh comes off very easily and you, you, know, you could give access to look at the bones. Because the students wanted to know how many bones in the human body. Because their Rebbe told them the human body has 248 bones. So they put this prostitute in the pot, they put up the heat to 450, and then they counted the bones and they saw there were 252 bones. So they asked the Rebbe, you told us 248, but look, look at the pot, they're 252. The Rebbe said, women have four more bones. Men have 248 bones, women have 252. Right? Why? Why? Right? Women have, uh, they need two hinges and two doors to, to be able to have children, the Gemara says. By the way, you know how many bones the human body has, according to uh, modern day standards, 206. So you have to count certain subsidiary bones to be mashed in the 248. By the way, that's why when you make a Misha Beirach for a Chayla, for a man, you say L'Ramach Evarov, 248. But by a woman, you say L'Chol Evarov. You don't say 248. She doesn't have 248. She has 252. Says Achsam Soifer, how did these students of Rabbi Shmuel boil the bones of this Zaina? But I thought, and my opinion is, that merely to study a dead body is an Isser Dairaisa, you're not getting enough from a dead body. Says Achsam Soifer, another Chiddush. The prohibition of deriving benefit from a dead body is only a Jewish body, not a non-Jewish body. So, how do Jews go to medical school? They have to make sure that the cadaver on the table is not a Yid. So they say, Yanko, is it you? No, just joking. You're allowed to rely on the halacha. You're allowed to rely on the halacha that roiv bodies are uh, akam. Roiv bodies are akam. So what do you do if you're a doctor in Eretz Yisrael? So Rav, uh, Rav Cook has a tshuva. Then Eretz Yisrael, he says, they're required to buy non-Jewish bodies. Ah, it's a chil Hashem? He said, not a chil Hashem. Why is it a chil Hashem? We have 613 mitzvahs. We're considered... God's chosen people, and all the Goyim have to recognize that. And if they don't recognize that, then uh, this is not going to hurt 
or help the situation. So if Cook writes explicitly that that's what the hospitals in uh, Israel have to do, but that has nothing to do with what, what we're talking about right now. Says of Sam Seifer, it is prohibited midairaisa to study the anatomy of a dead body. And his uh, Talmud, the Maram Shik, brings a proof that obtaining information is considered a hana, because the Gemara tells us, if let's say I make a ned there, I make a vow, then I'm not going to get any benefit from you. I'm allowed to learn from your svarim. Why? But what do you mean? I'm gaining knowledge? Torah knowledge is not considered a pleasure. It's a responsibility. It's not a pleasure. That implies that if it would not be Torah knowledge, I would not be allowed to borrow, you know, your Mark Twain, Innocence Abroad, and read it because I'm gaining uh, knowledge from it. So what do we see from here? You see from this halacha that from Torah, Torah is not considered hana, but secular information is considered hana, that obtaining knowledge is considered hana, the Maram Shik and the Chsam Soifer both say that one may not study a dead body because there's an Isser hana. What about you want to make an autopsy on a body to see cause of death? That's another Isser of It's Nivol Hames. It's a disgrace of a human body. But what if, but if I figure out why this person died, it might be able to save a life down the road. Says Hassam Sofer, that's not called saving a life. Saving a life means when you have someone here lying at the table that you need to figure out why this guy died to save this guy, that's called saving a life. But the fact that you want to gain knowledge to save someone's life in a year from now, that is not halakhically recognized and uh, that is prohibited. Okay? So if that's the case, by the way, not everybody agrees with Hassam Sofer. Shalos Tshuvas Machanechayim, a descendant of the Chassam Soifer, says, merely gazing at a dead body is not considered Hana. And he brings a very interesting proof. This is just a tangential. We know that Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rebbe, after he died, he used to come back every Friday night to make Kiddush. Who's there? It's me. Oh, right? Rebbe would come back Friday night, he would pick up the kais, and he would make Kiddush. So ask the Machanechayim, what, what's his wife doing? His wife is wearing a paper bag over her head and not looking at him. Of course not. She's looking at him. But he's dead. And she's deriving benefit by looking at her dead husband. So you see from there that gazing at a dead person in order to derive benefit, that is not considered halachic benefit. You could argue, argue against that. If you look on the side of the page there in Ksubis, Rabbi Kivager says, look in the Sefer Hasidim. So if you look in the Sefer Hasidim, Sefer Hasidim asks, if Rebbe is dead, how could he make Kiddush? He's not Chayv in Kiddush, how could he be Moitzi's his family? So Yudha Chassid says, eh, he came back not as a dead man, he came back alive. So if he came back alive, of course, obviously there's no prohibition to look at. Okay, but that's a discussion for a different time. So if that's the case, yeah. Uh, this is sort of parsing. Okay, so hold on to okay? Okay, so according to that, according to that, it comes out that you're not allowed to study a dead body in order to derive benefit. So if that's the case, if you can't study the, so then how are you allowed to derive benefit from experimentation that the Nazis performed, that the American government performed, that in Tuskegee, Alabama, they experimented with 412 poor black sharecroppers, how are you allowed to derive benefit from that? But the Chassam Soifer says, you can't even study a dead body to learn anatomy. So how are you allowed to experiment on a dead body to derive information? What's the answer to that? The same distinction we've been saying all night. And that is, of course you weren't allowed to experiment in the first place. Of course you're no, you weren't allowed to study the anatomy in the first place. Of course you're not allowed to derive any knowledge from a dead body in the first place. But now that the information has been derived, no Pisic has ever said that you can't use the information. After all, it's been stated that most scientific information that we have today is based on inhuman, cruel, harsh experimentation. But does anybody say, okay, so you're now to become a doctor because all the information that has been gleaned was gleaned uh, illicitly? Of course not. Rabbi said the distinction that we're drawing today is a very important distinction. Yes, the Rambam says you're now to kill somebody to cure someone. Yes, Rabbi Yaakov Emden says you're now to derive benefit from an item used to kill somebody. Yes, the Chassam Soifer says you're now to study the anatomy of a dead man. 
But the Chassam Soifer never said that if you went, imagine uh, someone came to the Chassam Soifer. He said, guess what, Chassam Soifer? For the last 20 years, I've been studying Jewish dead bodies to learn anatomy. Am I allowed to use the information I learned to treat people? The answer is absolutely yes. You weren't allowed to learn the information in the first place. But once information was learned, the information is not Asr Bahana. You were not allowed to derive the Hana in the first place. But now the Hana is derived. So now you want to know, can I use the information? Absolutely. And in fact, there's a very clear proof that even scientific information that has been gleaned illicitly is permitted to be used. And this uh, proof, uh, Rabbi Bleich advances, and it's based on the Gemara in Masech Danida, the Aflam and Omid Beis. The Gemara says like this, there was once a queen by the name of Cleopatra. Queen of Alexandria. Or the Gemara says Queen of Greece. Does anybody know why she's called Queen of Greece if she lived in Egypt? Because after Alexander the Great died at a young man at the age of 32, so then his empire is broken up into his four generals, right? <laughs> Seleucus, Antigonus, and Talmai took Egypt. So Cleopatra was the, uh, the queen of that branch of the Greek Empire. Okay, in any event, so she had certain maidservants that were uh, liable to the death penalty. So what did she do? She had them impregnated, and she wanted to conduct the following experiment. She wanted to see if um, male, males develop in the same amount of time as females. How long does it take for a gender to be determined. Right? Halacha we say it takes 40 days for a male's gender to be determined, 40 days for a female's gender to be determined. That's why we say that before the first 40 days, right? Within the first 40 days, you're allowed to pray to have a boy, to have a girl, because the gender has been undetermined. Once 40 days pass, the Gemara says in Brachos, it's a tefillah shav, because the gender has already been determined. But there was a Tanaitic opinion that actually a male takes 40 days to, uh, to form. Women are more complex, they take 80 days. That was an opinion of one of the Tanan. So Cleopatra performed the following experiment. She impregnated a, bun a bunch of maidservants that were liable to the death penalty anyway. So they both, she started them all at the same time. And then, 40 days later, she opens them up and she sees that those who are pregnant with males, those who are pregnant with females, they were all developed, their genders were developed on day 40. So from there, Cleopatra concluded that both male and females develop after 40 days. So the Gemara asks, how is that experiment valid? Maybe really it takes 80 days for a female to develop. And maybe this shifcha that Cleopatra thought she was impregnating on what she thought was day one, she really lived with someone 40 days earlier. So it turned out that she already conceived 40 days earlier and when she opened her up and she saw a female, this female is 80 days old. Says the Gemara, Cleopatra used... An abortive fashion, she gave the ladies a pill the day before that would abort any pregnancies they had, and this way they all starting on the same point of time. So, Rabbi Bleich points out that we know having an abortion for a Yisrael, for a Jew, is an Isra Dairaisa, is a biblical prohibition, but it's not murder. But for a Ben Noyach to have an abortion, it's Ritzicha, it's murder. So that means Cleopatra, in order to glean her information, she violated Ritzicha. So how could the Chachamim rely on her results, but these results came about through bloodshed? How were they allowed? They should have taken the results, buried it in the ground, together with the noose and the Chazan's gartel and all the other items we discussed tonight. How were they allowed to rely on this information? The answer is, of course Cleopatra was not allowed to perform these experiments. And we wouldn't have been allowed to. But once the experiment has been performed, you're not allowed to get Hanoi from a mace. But once the information is here in the world, you're allowed to use the information. So it comes out, Halacha that even though all the atrocities of the Nazis may be abhorrent to our human sensibilities, nevertheless, 
And even though our natural inclination should be, we can't use this information, but we have to take our natural inclinations and our gut reactions and our what comes to us at first glance and we have to put it aside and we have to say, what does the halacha say? And the halacha says that information that has been gleaned illicitly, unethically, immorally, and it was not allowed to be gleaned, but it's sitting here. And you have someone's life to save. So actually the halacha says you're required to use the information to save someone's life. But, but it doesn't feel good to me and, and I'm appalled by such a thing. That's wonderful. Write a poem about how much it appalls you. But now we want to know what to do. And knowing what to do is not dependent on your feelings. It's dependent on Ma Gazar Avinu Shabbat What does Hashem say? So Hashem says that you can't study a dead body only if it's uh, of an Akhri. You can't derive benefit from an item used to kill someone. But this information has already been gleaned. So as much as it rubs against our human sensibilities and our inclinations, we have to transcend our inclinations to do the Ratzon of Hashem. And that is the main limud of this week's parsha. You have a paraduma. We don't understand it. We don't comprehend. Even Shlomo Amelach, Chacham Mikal Adam, had no understanding of such a thing. But nevertheless, that's Zois Chukas That is the bottom line. That is the bottom line principle in the Torah. That in order to be a halachic decider, in order to be able to formulate a halachic opinion, you can't allow your feelings to play a role. And in fact, we'll conclude with this. The Gemara in Sanhedrin tells us that if you want to sit on the Sanhedrin, you have to be able to take a, ma- a mouse, right? We spoke about mice before. You have to be able to t- take a mouse and explain 150 reasons why you're allowed to eat it. 150 heterim to eat a mouse. So Tysus asks, but Halach is you're not allowed to eat a mouse. So why would we want this guy, well, he's, he's a Chacham from the Manashtana? He has 150 heterim to eat a mouse, but... You're not allowed to eat it. So what do we need this guy to be, you know, have chachma shohevel? So the Tartamima answers in his Sefer Taisus Bracha. In order to be a Dayan, you know what you have to recognize and understand? That the halacha is against your sensibilities and what you would think. In other words, if a regular person looks at a mouse and he says, Ugh, I'm not going to eat it. I'm not going to eat it. He's disqualified from sitting on the court. Because to him, the halacha is rational. Someone who thinks that the halacha is a matter of, you know, this is something that's very reasonable and very rational. He's disqualified to sit on the court. The only type of person that is qualified to sit on a Jewish court is someone who would say, that I could supply 150 logical reasons why the halacha should not be like this. And even so, I subjugate all of my logic and all of my sensibilities to follow the halacha. That is the main requirement to be a paisek according to the Gemara. To be able to say every ounce of me doesn't understand it. But I transcend my human sensibilities and my natural inclinations to follow the Rats and of Hashem Rabbi say, have a wonderful evening.